but I was a, an underscouter, I guess. I was never in charge of the troop um, until I think I was 19. And they planned this really, really, really ambitious cross-country skiing trip. And they most some of us had never been on cross-country skis before. Uh, and it was winter outside of Montreal. And so the temperature was probably negative 30 or something Celsius. I mean, really oh. cold. And the door days were quite short. And they told us that there would be a snowmobile to carry all our gear. So no one packed light. And then we got there and we had these packs. And this is in the 90s. The packs weren't that great. No. Um, and some of us had never skied before, including myself. And anyway, we got a late start and we're on this trail. And the scouter and a bunch of the kids who could ski took off. And we were probably trying to do 12 or 14 kilometers. And it was pretty far in the cold. Um, but then everybody got spread out. There were no communications back to front. And I ended up after dark coming across a scout whose feet had frozen and he had just unrolled his sleeping bag and laid in the snow and he was about to go hypothermic. And I managed oh, to geez. get him and we marched, I think, nine kilometers on really, really frostbitten feet to a cabin that night and then had to be kind of rescued out. It was terrible. The scout leader was was fired and I ended up taking over the troop. Uh, which I was completely unqualified to do. And then it went co-ed, I think, the next year. So I had the first female scouts in our troop, at least in Montreal West. Uh, And we didn't have any female leaders. And so I got to experience the joy of that. (laughs) Yeah, that always forces it. Yeah. So there were a lot of firsts. I think I I, I legitimately saved a kid's life. Uh, Yeah. And uh, and then there, I got to have some of the first female scouts in you know, on the island of Montreal for a while. Learned some lessons there about what eleven-year-old girls want to do versus what eleven-year-old boys want to do, at least back then. <laughs> so yeah, it was good learning. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Scouting Stuff You Should Know. This is episode 81 of the podcast, and you have got two of us today, although not the usual two. You've got myself, Scouter Ken, and I'm fortunate to be joined by Mr. Aiden Chopra, is it? Mm -hmm. Chopra? From from Bitsbox. From Bitsbox. Hello. So, um... We've already dived into uh, a little bit of detail about, you know, sort of your, your history with scouting. But, um, you know, by all means, like, take a, take a couple of minutes to, to tell us about yourself outside Absolutely. of that. Yeah, sure. Well, let's see. I am a uh, 43-year-old dad who lives in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I guess I'm, I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to talk to you because I co-founded a tech startup for kids called Bitsbox. We make materials and stuff that teaches computer science to kids in elementary school and what they call middle school here in Canada or in the U S. Um, right. I guess my secret sauce is that I'm actually Canadian. I was born and raised in Montreal as an Anglophone, um, and lived there until I was probably 20. I ended up going to university in Nova Scotia in Halifax and studying fine art. Um, but not only am I Canadian, I also uh, was heavily, heavily involved in the scouting organization from when I was a beaver all the way up to when I was a venturer. So in beavers, I think my neighbor was the Akela and then went all the way through Cubs. I was, I think that was called a Sixer. Is that right? 
Are they still called Sixers? Yeah. No, I was use that terminology anymore, but that's what it was back then. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, was a scout for a long time, ended up uh, as a venturer. The crowning achievement of my venture career was participating in a trip to Kenya, actually Western Kenya for five weeks to do a construction project and sort of spread the scouting word there for a bit. Um, that was genuinely up, awesome. Yeah, it was a really great, really great. I wish there'd been digital photography. I would have more photographs of uh, that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, ended up being kind of a junior leader. Um, and then ended up taking over our local, local troop in Montreal West and running it for a couple of years before I went to university. So a proud Scouts Canada member. And um, I hope one day for my kids to participate in Scouts too. Scouts of the U.S., Boy Scouts of the United States or BSA or whatever it's called, is a different organization philosophically. And so we haven't been quite as enthusiastic about signing them up for that here. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I've had some interactions with BSA units before. Actually, that's kind of my thing is wherever I go, because um, I travel a lot for work, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm very client facing. And so whenever I get sent pretty much anywhere, um, the first thing I do is I just start like Googling around and a lot of groups have Facebook pages. So I'll use that as a resource as well. But basically just like finding all of the scout groups in the area that I can. Mm-hmm. And then just like sending out emails and saying, hey, you know, like I'm a scout leader from Canada and I've been involved with scouting for like however many decades it's been since I was a beaver. Um, if you're doing anything between these dates, I'd love to come and join you and, you know, like just be a guest. Oh, that's super so, cool. And have you yeah, noticed sort of regionally in the U.S. major differences between scouting sort of in, I heard you, I read that you were in Oklahoma recently. Ah, uh, you know what? That fell through. I'm going to be going there in two weeks. Okay. Well, actually, by the time this goes live, probably a week, but okay. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Um, so I'll be going there next, and yeah, I'll be meeting uh, some groups from there. Um, there's There's been some regional differences, but nothing that I couldn't like chalk up to just... The U.S. itself seems to have just a lot of interesting regional differences, right? Like even... Yeah. You know, y- you go from... I mean, I mean, that's true of Canada too, to a degree, but you know, the, the difference you're going to feel going from, you know, even from like Alberta to Saskatchewan or Alberta to British Columbia, the difference you're going to feel to me doesn't seem as extreme as even like the difference between say, um, Indiana and Kentucky, even though those states are just right next to each other. You know, even the accent changes. I find the Indiana accent is fairly close to my own. Um, so much so that I almost don't perceive it, whereas the Kentucky accent is quite distinct. Yeah, it depends what part of Kentucky you're in, too. If you're on the Ohio side of Kentucky, it's it's very different. Yeah, I'm not True. sure why that is. It might have something to do with the population density. I always just try and describe, when I'm here in the U.S. telling Americans about Canada, and most of them, unfortunately, don't know much about it. <laughs> um, mm. But they're eager to learn. I sort of describe that Canada is it's sort of, you know, it's horizontal, we are arranged horizontally, more or less. There is no y-axis a lot of the time. Whereas <laughs> the U.S. Really. is more sort of two-dimensional. You know, you've got north, south, and east and west, and so yep. you've just got many, many, many more variations on things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whereas everybody in Canada is more or less distributed along the within a hundred kilometers or something of the border. Pretty much, Edmonton is about uh, the northernmost major city in. Uh, 
in Canada, you know, I mean, there are cities further to the north, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Even into the territories, but in terms of like million plus metro area, um, Edmonton's it for yeah. as, as far as the northern, anyways, <clears throat> rough topic. Yeah. So you founded Bitsbox, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast here before. Um, and I mean, anybody who's followed um, the followed the the podcast on especially like instagram will have seen um photos of my cubs working away on on chromebooks uh, we have a good relationship with the school that we meet in and so uh, actually for the last couple of years it's worked out really really well because they started doing this thing where they do like a school musical mm-hmm. um, which is i think is really awesome for an elementary school to pursue because they're just like grades of k to six at this, right. at this place. So it's really awesome that they attempt that. Um, but then, of course, that has fallen on a Wednesday night for the last couple of years. And that's the night we meet on. And so, you know, I've ah. had to, uh, uh, I get the email from the principal. It's just like, can we kick you out of our gym on this evening? And I'm just like, sure. Can we go into your library and maybe you leave a Chromebook cart unlocked? <laughs> um, and they've been totally on board with that, you know. Um, for for uh i don't know if this is the case in montreal but here in alberta of course we have um you know public and catholic schools and it's all like under the banner of alberta education it's all publicly funded education um but you know it's two kind of separate school systems and so google for education has just taken over here mm-hmm. it really has and so it's cool that you know there's like we meet at one particular public school there's four others in the area that might like different of the Cubs go to, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. They can walk in to this school, even if they go to a completely different Edmonton public school and they can log right in to any of the Chromebooks there and just pick up and run with it. Like, you know, just using nobody's their business. SSO. That's super just cool. using their, yeah. Using their educational account because it's all mm-hmm. Google for education. Um, and similarly, like the Catholic system has its Google for education as well, but those instances don't cross pollinate, but mm. the school's good about furnishing us with guest accounts for, or like my own kids, because we're actually coming from a city outside of Edmonton, um, into, into the city proper. So that's a different school system again. Um, but the school that we meet at, they furnish guest accounts. They give us access to the Wi-Fi, so kids can do the BYOD thing, um, and it's great. You know, we just set up in the library, and I order a bunch of Bitsbox materials, and away we go. Oh, that's phenomenal! So, so like I say, if you've <laughs> followed the uh, scouting stuff Instagram, you'll have seen photos of that on occasion. I just posted at least one recently. Uh, recently, but anyways, so Bitsbox, as you mentioned, is you know it's a tech startup. It's designed around the idea of teaching kids to code. And unlike some of the other options that are out there, I'm thinking specifically of like MIT Scratch, um, Bitsbox emphasizes the use of real code. And um, I guess kind of as a start to really get into a discussion of, you know, Bitsbox and the advantages of teaching kids to code, when you were standing the company up for the first time, and when you were sort of really putting this Bitsbox idea together, what Mm -hmm. drove the uh what what drove the decision to focus on using real code as opposed to something you know that abstracts the code away like mit scratch yeah uh well i mean that's sort of a long story and and i'm happy to tell it and it but it doesn't necessarily involve me so (laughs) i guess bitsbox came uh about when my co-founder scott leininger um 
actually decided that he wanted to build a little piece of technology that would help him teach his daughter to code. Um, and what you have to understand about Scott is he, as a fellow 43-year-old, um, learned to code on the computer that his parents bought him way back in the early 80s. And so they kind of had the foresight to get him this um, Radio Shack TRS-80 machine. Oh, and it nice. uh, And it, it, it really didn't do anything. I mean, the only thing you could do is code on it. Uh, yeah. In fact, the, the instructions that came, you have to understand this machine is, it, it looks like what we would consider to be an enormous keyboard. It doesn't have a screen. It didn't have a mouse. It was um, beige. I think it only had capital <laughs> letters. It certainly didn't have arrow keys or anything like that. The way that yeah. you would use it is you'd plug it into your television so the family couldn't watch TV while you were coding. Um, but then the book, the, 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 the computer actually came with a book. Uh, and the book included how to code instructions in a computer language called BASIC. And Scott, as a seven-year-old, actually taught himself to code on that computer by typing in the code from the book on this computer uh, to make the games and other things, mostly games, that he wanted to play. At the time, I guess rich kids or richer kids could buy cartridges or things that you could plug in and play a game that someone else had written. But in general, if you wanted to play a game, you had to code it first. That's the way it worked. And so he right. he learned to code that way. Um, he was always kind of a, a kid who could code. He went through university here in Boulder and studied art, actually, like I did. But he could also code. He did a little bit of minor study in computer science. So that when he came out of college, uh, the difference between him and the other art students is that he could build websites. And so he got a job, a really good job, really quickly. And ah. then that just sort of built and built and built until he had a little startup here in Boulder. I was working on a, a team called SketchUp at Google. SketchUp is I remember the SketchUp uh, three, application. Yeah, so 3D modeling software for architects and engineers and people like that. Anyway, Scott made uh, some technology that integrated with ours, and we ended up acquiring his company. And so Scott and I began to work together around 2007. Uh, we weren't close friends or anything. But then around 2013, 2014, uh, his daughter Audrey was seven, and she said, Dad, what do you do? Like, I understand you're a coder, but what does that mean? And so he went around, he went online and he started to Google around like ways to teach kids to code. And all he found were the kind of block based methods that you describe either abstract block based methods like MIT Scratch or things that are really heavily gamified, right? Where they're just basically games. You sort of solve a logic puzzle and then you get the the muffin or the mushroom or the badge or something at the end of it. Um, right. And he was just really dissatisfied with that. He was like, I learned to code by typing on a keyboard, typing real code into it, into a computer. And my daughter is fully capable of doing that as well. I don't, he just, I'm speaking as him now, but I don't think, uh, she needs this layer of abstraction. I think that she can learn it herself, but you know, the, the tricky thing about modern coding languages um, is that the most ubiquitous language isn't the easiest language to learn, if that makes any sense, right? So BASIC was specifically designed to be easy to learn, but BASIC doesn't get you very far anymore. Not really, no. If you want to learn to code and you want to go off and do something cool with your code, you pretty much have to learn something like JavaScript or Python. Um, and if you're interested in making games and things that are highly graphical and interactive, then JavaScript's kind of the ticket. That's what... Um, websites and interactive web applications and things that run in your browser are made in. 
The problem with JavaScript, I mean, the good thing is it's ubiquitous, right? Lots of people use it and it'll run really easily. It's easy to use. Uh, the trouble with it is that it's like English. It's really hard to learn. <laughs> it's, yes. uh, English is also not the most easy language to learn. It's ubiquitous and useful and people all over the world have to learn it because it's kind of the language of commerce or whatever. But if an alien came down from space and said, I would like to communicate with you humans, what language should you learn? You probably wouldn't say English if, if usability was like your first concern. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... My kids, I mean, you know, and my kids are native English speakers and we joke about this all the time. It's just like, it does not obey its own rules. No, there are more exceptions than there are rules and it's brutal. My, my, my son who's in uh, grade two has just had a spelling test yesterday where it was just a bunch of words and they all had two O's in the middle, but good and food and sh yeah, just the number of, anyway, it's a brutal language. And yeah, JavaScript it is. is a little bit like that. It was, it, it wasn't very well from, and I'm not a developer, but from what I've heard from many people, it's just, it wasn't designed in the same way that languages like Python or Ruby were to be very user-friendly, to make a lot of internal sense, uh, to be easy to learn. So the conundrum that people like us have is if you want to teach kids to code or really anyone to code, do you try to teach them a language that's easier like Python or Ruby or call it scratch, right? Where you're actually looking at colored snap together blocks rather than typed syntax. Um, or do you try and teach them the harder language because ultimately that'll be a little bit more useful for them. And obviously we chose to tackle the harder thing because we think it's, it's really motivating to be able to make your own stuff. So that's how we arrived at JavaScript. The tricky thing is the graphics in JavaScript and like trying to use pictures and sounds and animations and things is even worse. So Scott, oh, yeah, you're jumping through object hell. Yeah. So Scott, uh, his big brainstorm was, wow, what if I create a little API? That is to say a little library of commands that will work when you're coding in Bitsbox, not when you're just coding JavaScript to run on anybody's website, but like when you're inside our little online coding environment, what if I can make it really easily for you to put pictures on the screen, animate those pictures, play sounds and music with a little library of commands that act sort of like training wheels between uh, beginner coding and then call it real full-on professional coding. And so that's kind of been our secret sauce. It's, it's JavaScript with a handful of commands that make it much, much easier to make something cool quickly uh, than it would be if you had to learn it all from scratch by yourself. Yeah, I seem to recall um, one bit of material, some promotional material released for Bitsbox. can't remember if it was somewhere on your website or something I just kind of read in a handout somewhere, but it was showing like the difference between the JavaScript command to... Turn the screen red. <laughs> turn, yeah, turn the background red versus fill yeah. red. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, purists will say, wow, you're abstracting it just like Scratch is abstracting it and you're not doing it right. And to some extent, that's true. Um, but we feel like they're at least still typing, which is a pretty critical skill to have in this century, even if you're not coding. Um, and they're learning about precision and patience and debugging by having to understand which parentheses to use or which apostrophe goes where and is there a comma and that sort of thing. So there's well, no, I mean, yeah, there's no question that syntax is complicated and terrible yes. and that learning to code is hard. It really is. And that people are right to try and make it as easy as possible, but it's just a question of how big the training wheels should be and how long you want to leave them on. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, to that point, 
like what I found uh, in my career, because when I'm not doing client facing work, I'm back at the office or more often than not in my home office, like I am today, writing bits of code to support the work that my team does, right? To, to help us gather data quicker and analyze that data quicker and, and deliver results from that data quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know that benefits our clients, that improves our turnaround times for when we're doing projects for clients. Means we can take on more projects. You know all of that stuff, right? It just builds. Mm -hmm. And you know, there was a time when I was a bit more of a language purist. You know, like I would use C sharp, and that was like it C sharp. And then if I needed to do like local scripting on a host, well then you know fine. Like I'm using Batch, or I'm using PowerShell, or I'm using Bash. Well, you're already above my pay grade. I told you I studied right. jewelry and architecture, yeah. right? <laughs> but you know. The, the point is like C sharp was like my go-to programming language. And then everything else was just local scripting and whatever the local scripting language was on the box. Usually it's windows. So we're talking about a batch file. Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, coming, you know, 10 years on from that, um, it's really become a case of, you know, I'm going to use the language that is best suited to this task. If that's C sharp, fine. If that's, Visual Basic, fine. If that's VB script, fine. If that's JavaScript, fine. I don't really care about the language. I care about the task that I need the finished program to perform. And whatever language is best mm -hmm. for that is the one I'm going to chase and use. And I think the value of something like Bitsbox is that, you know, yes, it does abstract away the often terrifying complexity of JavaScript, but it does so in a way that, you know, like you say, it still has kids typing. It still has kids learning about syntax and the importance of syntax. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed with the Cubs all the time is that, you know, they'll be coding some more complicated program and they'll be trying to test it, but they're like in the middle of developing a function. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, until that function is fully realized, they can't actually test their code. And so it's, you know, learning that learning how you actually go about testing code, which sometimes means, you know what, I've just got to hammer out these 12 lines and then hit go. And it's kind of a hope and a prayer <laughs> that yeah. I didn't screw up any of those 12 lines. And if I did, well, then I can bug fix. But um, And coding is so frustrating when you're learning it. It really, I mean, I'm learning to code now. I'm a little better than I used to be. But when I was first starting this a few years ago, when we started the company, I mean, your code is broken 95% of the time. It really is. Oh, yeah. It's like most of your time is spent debugging, which I don't think any sane person would consider fun. But I think everyone can agree that it's it's really important. Man, I think yeah. you you most of the learning and the thinking is done when the thing is broken and you're trying to figure it out, not just when you're trying yeah. to figure out how to make it work. But if you can get those principles down and if you can get you know an understanding of syntax down, then it kind of becomes... There's a point at which it's like, okay, I can move from this language to this language. And yeah, I'm going to have to learn syntax mainly, mm -hmm. but I'm also going to be bringing with me this whole battery of, you know, skills and the patience of bug testing. And so, you know, th there, there comes that point where it's like, okay, well, now I got to jump from this language to this language, but it's a much shorter hop. Yeah, we call that, I mean, what I've learned uh, to call that is something related to computational thinking, that the the skills and procedures that you develop in trying to think like, it's not thinking like a computer, but in trying to solve a problem the way that you can with code, um, 
It's just so valuable. And that's completely syntax or language agnostic. That's the same no matter what you're working in. A loop is a loop. Yep. A conditional statement is a conditional statement. And the nice thing about computer languages is that there just aren't that many words. <laughs> you know, I think no. when people who don't code think about coding languages, they assume that the difference between JavaScript and, I don't know, C Sharp is like the difference between English and French, but it's not. <laughs> it's really not. And it's, and it's documented. I, I mean, we're that. talking about a few hundred words. Um, and we're talking about something that's actually quite easy to look up when you need it. So the whole coding as a language analogy only really goes so far. True. And it's good that you brought up the documentation aspect of it, because that's another part of Bitsbox that I really, really like. Um, and it's of course improved massively in the time that I've been using Bitsbox. Um, well, thanks. It's just the ability for the kids to have that library right there that they can, you know, click on and it's like, okay, I want this, I want a shape that might, that, that's like this. I want to look up a ship shape, mm -hmm. for example. Okay. Like I was just doing an application with them where I was like, a, um, you sent out, you sent out, well, not you personally, but like I, I get emails from Emma at Bitsbox yeah. all the time. Emma like, sits next to me. There are only 12 of us. Oh. <laughs> We're not a very big Fair company. Enough. Fair enough. So, you know, she's handling a lot of your promotional work. Mm -hmm. And around St. Patrick's Day, she sent out the Lucky Leprechaun coding sample, right? Yeah. And it was, you know, a little application where there's like a leprechaun standing beside a bridge and there's a pot of gold coins and you tap and hold on the gold coin and it launches a coin. And if you get the coin to the leprechaun, he does a happy little jig. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually sent that out to my cubs as just a challenge, just like, you know what? Prize for the first person who is able to code this and send it back to me. And a prize for the first person who is able to take this, modify the theme of it mm -hmm. so that it's mechanically the same, but a different theme of app mm -hmm. and send that back to me. Right. And, and then of course I put together sort of a sample as well. So, and I mean, like it worked, right? Like I had, you know, one kid sent me back the code, uh, almost right away, you know, nice. got the lucky leprechaun working and it was great. And then a few days later, another kid sent me, uh, another th bit of code where instead of, you know, launching a coin out of a pot of gold coins towards a leprechaun, it was a basket and you would launch a fish towards a, a waiting kitten. Sure. Right? As one does. So, <laughs> as one does, right? Cats, cats love fish. Uh, so, but just, you know, wanting them to think about how, um, things are, you know, just wanting them to think about, you know, how to make those little changes. But then I also put together my own app and I made it, um, I made it pirate themed, right? So it was like, you have a pirate ship over here. And so you tap and hold on it and it makes a cannon sound and it launches a silver ball towards the other ship. And the other ship though, would be randomly selected one from an array. Mm -hmm. um, so it'd be different ships each time. And of course they would move around the screen and things like that. And I just wanted to, you know, show the cubs that, um, because you see this a lot with like, uh, the, the point I was building towards with them was like, you know, something like mobile games, right? It's like, yeah. well, here's Frozen Free Fall and here's Candy Crush and here's this other thing. They all match three games, right? It's the same it's game just different with different yeah. graphics yeah. and slightly different mechanics. Right. Which is kind of what I was going for there. And then also um, the last time we were doing this coding thing, we were specifically focusing on like arrays and using arrays to store multiple values and then what you can do with that, right? Mm -hmm. But um, it's just, you know 
trying to just encourage that thinking, encouraging that different thinking. Right. And Bitsbox is just wonderful for that. Well, thank you. I think you're using it exactly right, too. So thank you for being such a terrific advocate. I mean, <laughs> it's... Uh, well, we try. We made... It was funny, you know, when we first started our conversation here, you were using the term real coding. And um, like, why did you choose to do real coding as opposed to this block-based coding? And we... Yeah. We... Uh, it's funny because we, we... At the first, we were worried about ruffling feathers... I mean, obviously, the genesis of Bitsbox is because Scott was unsatisfied with some of the block-based solutions that were out there. So he created a way that was easier for kids to do typed coding. And then we thought, well, let's not tick off the people. Because honestly, the people like Mitch Resnick and and the folks at MIT who make uh, Scratch these are good people doing good work. Like This is is really powerful, important stuff that they're doing. Um, And let's not put a value on it by saying real or not real. So we didn't do that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then um, we decided to sort of test the language of saying like build real apps or use real code. And people did respond to that. There's very little, if you're trying to convince people to teach their kids to code using your system or someone else's system, people who don't code uh, don't know enough about it to be able to understand the nuances, even if this one is dragging blocks and that one is typing words. If you don't really know how to code, you don't understand why one is better than the other, how they're different or or any of that stuff. So they need keywords like real or something to help make a decision. But as we've moved into education this year, not just selling Bitsbox to parents at home or to you know, scout leaders who want to use it with their packs or troops or anything, but sure. like actual schools, um, we've gotten some feedback that 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 our use of the word "real coding" is actually pretty offensive to a lot of educators who are using yeah. blocks and robots and lots of other ways of teaching this stuff. So I think we're backing off the use of "real." Mm-hmm. Um, Fair enough. It yeah. was definitely you know a vernacular term. Sure. Um, I guess. Well, it's still on our homepage, to, to be clear. Yeah. But I think I'm trying to be woke about the whole thing to the extent I can. Fair enough. Yeah. To 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 throw to throw a bit of non-shade in the direction of things like Scratch, right? Like I, I do still see the value in that because and I mean like I've used not Scratch in particular, but um I, I periodically dabble with with different game engines. And one that I keep gravitating towards is called Stencil with a Y. Huh. Um T-E-N-C-Y-L. And it's main coding interface is scratch like mm-hmm. right um and so i mean like you know because you know my kids they like playing video games as much as anyone but they know that i do the coding thing and now i've introduced it to them as well but occasionally they come to me and they're just like okay well but how are games made right mm-hmm. and bitsbox does allow me to show the rudiments of you know how one could put together a game right but then if they want to go a little bit further i can pull out something like stencil and be just like okay well now let's do this right we'll put some tiles in place and like okay here's the person and here's how we can make them jump and the visual the 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 visual blocks do help you know it's important and you kind of mentioned this before a for loop is a for loop right an if statement's an if statement and the visual blocks do represent that Mm -hmm. in their way and so they do help you um grasp at least you know the logic and the, the structure of the logic that would comprise a program so you know definitely definitely valuable um there um do i still prefer <laughs> using the typed code absolutely because realistically if you're actually going to run out into the job market that's more likely what you're going to find and uh, that's and definitely so, you true. know i i definitely <laughs> i definitely want you know the um 
the youth who do have this interest and want to pursue it beyond just, you know, me having the occasional meeting or beyond, you know, um, I think a few of them have subscribed or have had Bitsbox subscriptions in the past. Um, but, you know, if they want to move beyond just that and actually like, you know, do this in some sort of working capacity, well then, you know, let's, let's stick with the typed code because that's likely what you're going to find out there. Um, are there, are there visual abstractions for, um, you know, like, I mean, I know the unreal engine in theory has a way of visually abstracting away a lot of its scripting functions, but in practice, are they still going to be writing a lot of text? Yes, they probably are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even people who are trying to mod Minecraft, for instance, uh, if you want to do something kind of unique, um, if you kind of want to bring your own ideas to life, which sounds a bit cliched, but many of us believe that that's really the way to, to teach kids, including people like, you know, Maria Montessori, folks like that. Uh, yeah. Then you have to give them an open enough sandbox um, to be able to play in and make the things that they want to do. And, and you know, the, the counter argument is it's huge and it's hard to figure that out and confining them a little bit is good. I, I, I haven't, the funny thing is I learned, I tried to learn to code a few times I, in high school in Montreal, I went to a, I guess it'd be called a magnet school now, but it was called Royal West Academy. And it was chartered in like okay. 1980 as a public school within the, within the Protestant school board of greater Montreal system. Um, and its emphasis was on French and computers. So we actually had mandatory computer science, like coding classes in ninth, 10th, 11th grade. Um, but at the time, I don't remember it ever being made clear to me that this is something that was really important. You know, it was just, it was like gym or home ec. It was a class I had to take, not one that could potentially change my life in the way that I think. Uh, there were certainly kids in my class, all boys, who took to this like like some people take to computer coding, right? And it was their entire life and it's all they ever wanted to do. And they were in there before school and at recess and at lunch oh, yeah, for and sure. after school. Um, and those kids had a very particular social group. Uh, and I didn't see my, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't popular, but that wasn't my social group. And I sort of equated that interest with a particular social group, not as a particular, you know, entree to a career. And I think that's right. why I never really, I was good at it, but I never really pursued it. I was more interested in other types of science and art. Um, and then I kept trying to learn it, you know, when I was at Google, the API, um, the, the scripting language that you could use to build your own tools inside of SketchUp, which is a drawing tool, uh, was in Ruby. So I would try and learn Ruby periodically, but I'm not a very good self-teacher. Um, and then I tried some well, online stuff. Too, so. What's that? Ruby can be a bit weird too. I think it can, but I'd say you're coming from it going, oh, I know all these other languages. Ruby's weird. I didn't know any other languages and I just didn't have any kind of a framework. So I guess what I'm saying is I didn't start Bitsbox with Scott having any preconceptions about what the right way to teach kids to code was. I took Scott at his word that, that Bitsbox would be a useful addition to the collection of tools that, that teachers and parents have at their disposal. Um, and we've tried to make it the best thing it can be for the kids for whom it works. Um, but I think it exists in a broad universe of things uh, that are all useful at different stages in a learner's life and for different kinds of kids and teachers. And so 
I don't think we ever say that BitsBox is like the only way to do it. Um, I think there's an awful lot of kids who should probably start with something a little bit gamified or start with some blocks um, and maybe end with blocks. But but I think we're, we think we're part of sort of the natural progression for a lot of coders. Yeah. There was uh, – actually, there was something – kind of building off of that um i mean you know obviously when when you were in school and like when i was in school my story was something similar you know i we discovered the basic prompt on the apple twos quite by accident um during one particular um i think it was like some typing thing that we were doing mm-hmm. can't recall quite correctly but pretty sure it was something involving that and then someone figured out that you know it was like open apple this or maybe it was closed apple this there's some little keystroke command and it would just drop you to a prompt. Mm-hmm. We had no idea, you know. So we discovered quite by accident that it was the basic interpreter, hmm. and uh, then we started, you know, figuring out some of the commands that we could could run. Um, and then our grade five teachers. This would have been about yeah fifth grade. Our grade five teacher um, was rummaging, and he was new to the school at the time, but he was rummaging around one of the shelves in the computer lab. And he found some old magazines, not probably unlike some of the TRS-80 manuals, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know, because a lot of those old computing magazines had just basic code in the back. And he's like, oh yeah, put this in and here's a game. Yep. And so he, uh, with with the provisor that we had to finish the typing lesson first, uh, any extra time could be spent messing around with this basic code. And then he showed us how to like save our work to a floppy diskette because a few of the computers had floppy diskette drives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so we could actually like work on programs over the course of several days. And I mean, that was, uh, that was a heck of an introduction. It really was. And then sometimes he'd even just let us sneak in there at recess. Yeah. But, you know, coming out of, coming out of like, you know, your, your background with coding or, or my background with coding and just sort of, you know, being like you mentioned, there's like, you know, there's a certain there's a certain social group of kids who like really gravitated towards that, but it wasn't necessarily for everybody. We hear now it talked about a lot more how code literacy has really become a term, right? And how important it is that maybe not necessarily everybody, but that, you know, more people should be taught at least the rudiments of how to code. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, you know, here's, okay. So here's the negative, completely dystopian way of thinking about it. If we were the sort of company that marketed using heavily negative stuff, this is what I would say. And this is, I only know this because someone else said this to me. So I'll open with this and we can laugh about it. But in the future, there will be two kinds of jobs. There will be the kind of job where uh, you tell the computer what to do. And there'll be the type of job where the computer tells you what to do. (laughs) And you can, (laughs) and you can choose you know, there's entire seasons of Black Mirror about this, essentially. But it's, it's. Yeah. I mean, there's some truth in that. And the truth is that it's, it's very, very, very unlikely that we will become less technological over time, that our children will be living in a less technological world than we live in now. And already, um, many, many, many of the good jobs, and even the jobs adjacent to uh, the good jobs, require using some measure of technology, whether it's your phone or your car or God knows, you know, so many things. Um, If you don't know how any of it works, you're basically, uh, you know, left to believing in magic. You're sort of like, well, I don't, I don't know how any of this works. And so I have to completely entrust all of this, everything that determines how I spend my time and what I buy and where I buy it and which messages I, I listen to and which I believe 
all of that is filtered through a technology layer that you can either kind of understand how it's made or not. Um, I think we just believe that knowing at least what code is and how it's made and who makes it, who it's invented by and who it's for, who gets to wield it, who gets to publish it. Those aren't just coding questions. They're actually more about computer science and then an even bigger sort of realm of thinking about computer literacy. Um, if you can't do that, it's it's a little bit like being illiterate was two or 300 years ago. You're just living in a world where you don't, you're not able to sort of fully participate in the economy or in the social life or any of that stuff. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we, we look at the kinds of things that are happening with companies like Facebook and Google right now and, and Facebook's having its issues. Yeah. And you have to realize a, that like that entire, I think I read a really great article in the New York times recently about this, but I'll try and paraphrase it which is that Facebook is what you get when you get a social network that's entirely designed by introverted white males. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I could see right? that. And so it favors uh, a, a certain openness or an ideal of, well, everyone has the best of intentions and we should favor sharing over privacy. We should favor a certain sets of things. I mean, there's constraints that you use when you're designing anything and, and Facebook is no different. And by having things that are enormously powerful and used by billions and billions of people be designed by a very, very small subset, socioeconomically, racially, linguistically, however you want to split it up, you're not designing for all the people. You're really not. And you're probably designing in features or problems or bugs that you might not even encounter, that you couldn't even imagine encountering, um, unless you had people who represented these other groups. Uh Apple, I mean, a really notorious example of this just from the last two or three years is that Apple's Health Kit, the app that they ship on their phones and devices, right. uh, which tracks your heartbeat and it tracks all kinds of metrics about the way that your body works, it didn't have anything um, that talked about fertility. So interestingly, fully half the population is female and find it very useful to track things about their own uh, menstrual cycles and their own sort of fertility health wasn't one of the things that was included in the first release of this at all. And when it was, it was sort of broken. Really interesting, right? Like this is technology yeah, that's ostensibly for all, but was probably created by a very specific group of people who didn't look at all like the end users. And yeah, I'm actually just looking at Apple Health right now. And they and have it now. Like, they've added something like this. You can track your periods. They've, they've added you can more do stuff, yeah. But um, there are examples like that all over the place. And if we're headed toward a world that's even more like that, do you really want to live in a world that's designed by only a certain subset of people? I think we the biggest reason, practically, to get underrepresented groups, uh, minorities, but also women and other folks like that involved in this is this is the world we're going to be living in. And it has to be created by a representative group of those people. Otherwise, we're going to have some very, very negative consequences. Um, so that's the super practical reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, just to, to, to pivot off of that a little bit, I, I was just, a, a thought literally just raced through my head, which is like, you know, I don't mind, I mean, it'll cost, but I don't mind calling somebody to come and take a look at the pipes under my sink. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, I, I, to me, it's okay if I don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of like, say plumbing, even though, you know, I have a house and there is plumbing in the house. And if there's a problem with that, I mean, yes, 
an argument could be made that it would be good if I could diagnose and even fix the issue myself. But I'm okay with you know handing that off to somebody else because at the end of the day, it's plastic tubing and water, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm much less sanguine about you know handing off my understanding of the operations of a device that has all my banking information on it. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel it's much more important that I at least, and I mean, you know, obviously I'm not building my own phone and coding my own mobile operating system and, you know, whatever. But at the same time, I feel it much more urgent to understand how, you know, understand more about how my phone works, understand more about how apps work, understand more about how, um, secure internet communications work because that's my banking information as opposed to just the pipes under my sink. Yeah. To carry the plumbing analogy, even sort of one step backwards, not knowing anything about how technology works, how code is written and how devices work is sort of like not even knowing that when your bathroom is flooded, you need to call a plumber, right? Like I think there are that most people's relationship with their, with their iPhone or their Android device or something is at that level. They have absolutely no idea how it works. Like your your bathroom could be filling up with water and you wouldn't even know I need a plumber versus an electrician or a painter or a drywall <laughs> specialist. Like this is – most people know so very little about their technological environment that they don't even know th- where to begin thinking about it. And so what we think is really important to, to sort of use that analogy is you should know that when you have a leaky pipe, you need a plumber. And when, if you've gotten electrocuted, when you go to plug in your fan, you need an electrician, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and it's fine, actually, if your understanding ends with being able to occasionally plug something in or unplug it or unclog your sink or do something like that. And you need a specialist for any of that. We're absolutely not saying that everyone needs to be a skilled computer programmer. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. But, um, man, man, you need to know something about these things. Otherwise, Yep. Who? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're already seeing what who equates to. I <laughs> yeah. mean, every, every breach and every scam that we hear about, it, it all comes down to, you know, just, yeah. I mean, that lack of understanding is is the thing that is most easily and commonly exploited, right? It really is. Uh, and, and that's not to say that people will get any smarter over time. I'm actually kind of pessimistic about that. But uh, we always, I mean, the great thing about kids is there's always another chance. <laughs> More kids are born and we have another chance to not mess it up. So let's not mess this up. <laughs> let's give them the tools yeah. they need to be responsible, informed, productive, happy human beings. And we think this is one of those For tools. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, got a bits buck story about that too, um, which actually it also speaks of like the value of collaborative work, which is another thing that uh, at least the way I approach bits bucks with the Cubs, I find happens a lot. Um, this was, this was the first year I did bits box. Gosh, already three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I had ordered up a bunch of materials and, you know, like I handed them out and the kids were working through them. And there was this one girl and she was tapping away and she had found, she had found the random, she had found a, a snippet in one of the booklets about the random function. And she had found a snippet in that same booklet about an array. And so she'd built an array of her friends' names, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, really simple. Every time she hit play, um, it would populate her tablet with like this pink background. And then it would be, you know, so-and-so's BFF is randomly selected name. Mm-hmm. 
pretty cool. Yeah. You know, I wish I could, I wish I could have figured out arrays in an hour when I was taking comp sci courses. Like, <laughs> um, but then the, the kid sitting next to her, he saw what she was doing and he thought, Hey, that's really cool. And so she gave him some pointers about like how to get the random function set up and how to get an array set up. And then what he realized he could do is that instead of, you know, just populating people's names into the array, he could populate the keywords for certain sound effects. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then he could use the, you know, he could basically have the sound function wrapping the random function so that every time he tapped his tablet screen, it would select and play a different sound effect. Hilarious. And we, have, we have all of four this different and, fart sounds, I think, at least. <laughs> That's at, at least, yes. <laughs> at least. And a few different explosion sounds. And like, it's great. Um, but I'm watching all of this unfold and I'm just like, you know, there, there are, there are people I went to school with who would have needed weeks to, to grasp the, the mechanics of this. And I mean, granted they weren't teaching us bits box in university coding classes. It was Java or it was C plus plus. And those are also quite difficult to learn languages for sure. But just, you know, to, to, to see kids unlock the fundamentals of not just storing values in an array, but then pulling them back out and using them to great effect in an hour and then collaborating with each other so that, you know, they can, they can, they can add a certain comedy to their, to their code. Um, just, ah, I, I, I still think about that today because it was just, you know, I mean, a, it was to me a very impressive, um, demonstration of just what Bitsbox as a technology enables. Um, but then also just, you know, again, that collaborative spirit and, and the fact that, you know, they were, you know, not building off of each other's work, um, that's ex- it was great to I mean, see. It's exactly what we want to see happen. It's so cool. It's so much more powerful when kids are coding together. It really is. Because there's always one kid. If you've got 20 kids all trying to figure something out, one will figure it out. And then the rest of them will kind of feed off of that. And often the kids who excel at uh, coding aren't necessarily the kids. I mean, sometimes they are. But often they're not the kid who gets noticed and who becomes sort of kid famous for anything else, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I was kid famous for being able to draw. That was my thing. I could draw really well. And so I got to draw for, you know, the play uh, flyers and it, it basically everything that required drawing. It was like, oh, Aiden's the kid who could draw. Nice. And there was other kids who were really good at soccer and there were some kids who could sing and there were other kids who could throw a ball really far, you know, like, Everybody kind of has their thing. And for a lot of kids, they don't have their thing. And we just hear from so many educators that a lot of the time coding clicks for the kid who doesn't yet, hasn't discovered his or her thing, right? And then all of a sudden, she figures that thing out like the, like the little girl in your, in your pack did. And she becomes famous, right? Like other kids want her and go, how did you do that? And the self-esteem and the, the sense of worth that kids get from that, those little moments they're so priceless. And it's not to say that Bitsbox is the only thing that can provide those. I think that uh, coding, though, appeals to perhaps kids who, f- for which other things don't necessarily appeal. And we feel really proud about that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, too, um, so one other one other bit about Bitsbox that I really like is just how easy it is to, well, I, I think, you know, again, sort of building off of that, it's the uh, it's the fact that, you know, the kids can have that further sense of accomplishment and you know, they're not 
publishing their own app that's going to get listed on the app store. But it's kind of cool that with Bitsbox, they do have the ability to, you know, have their thing that they wrote show up as an icon on mom and dad's phone home screen or on their own device's home screen, right? Yeah, that's super huge. Um, it's uh, so, so the shareability of Bitsbox programs is cool. Yeah, I mean, so much of um, kids' motivation is about making something that they perceive to be real. And so we realized really early on that um, a lot of platforms for teaching kids to code have them write little programs, but they only run in the in the development environment where they made them. And being able right. to have an app means being able to play it on device, which you love anyway, or your mom or your dad's device, your grandma's or whatever. And so we made it really easily, really easy, very early on to just um, zap a QR code on the screen with the camera or the QR reader software on your on your phone or your tablet. And then it opens up the Bitsbox app you're making uh, in a browser window on the device. So under the covers, Bitsbox apps are just web pages written in JavaScript. Um, But that's not something that's apparent to kids. To them, they just feel like they made a real app and then they can share it with people. The really neat thing, this is the thing, I, I didn't know enough about the technology to realize this is how it would work. So when Scott showed me that functionality and said, check this out, I was like, whoa. And then he changed the code on the computer in Bitsbox and it automatically updated on the device. And that's where my mind was blown. It was like, Oh yes, there's a link between the app that I write on the computer. And then where it's kind of like quote unquote published for all my users that I can write things and I can take feature requests and I can make jokes and I can even write code that lets people communicate with each other between their devices. That's huge because it's all web-based and interconnected. Anyway, I just think that's so cool. So that's, that's really kind of the, the green light for a lot of kids. Definitely. And yeah, I mean, well, one of our badge streams and like we overhauled the badge program in Cubs 2013 and then the rollout kind of finished 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going going back to a uh, much earlier part of the discussion, we we're talking about like, you know, the differences between say Scouts Canada and, and the BSA um, or Scouts BSA or whatever it's called now. Yeah. Big name change. Name. Um, uh, you know, one of the other scout groups that I reached out to and met, this was a couple of years ago now, was an Irish scout group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, the Irish scouting program and the Canadian scouting program feel almost identical because they are actually nearly identical. They're all based on the what's called the one program framework, which was published by the World Organization of the Scouting Movement, like back in 99 or something like that. Oh, cool. You know, whereas you and I, when you and I were in Cubs, we had loads of badges we could earn, right? And very specific topics. You know, a sewing yeah. badge, for example, or the photography badge or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's gone. Really? Yes. Now the badge stream has been split. So now we have like, I mean, we have our outdoor adventure skills badges, which are, you know, sort of the traditional scout crafty kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, knots the, and the tying of lashes, knots and, yeah. and all of that stuff, you know, pitching a tent and sleeping overnight and all that stuff. Um, and that's where like we use those as kind of the progression mechanic. We also have now just 16 personal achievement badges. And rather than being about very specific categories like sewing, mm-hmm. um, they're very general categories like hobby and oh. uh, or technology, right? We have just a general technology personal achievement badge. And um, it's actually up to the youth to define what requirements they are going to satisfy to pursue these badges. You know, whereas you and I would have had like a big checklist, do this, do this, do this, do this. Right, yeah. Um, 
at least for the personal achievement badges, the checklists are still there for the outdoor adventure skills because they're looking for very specific things. Can you swim this far? Can you yeah. have you slept so many nights outdoors? That kind of stuff. Yeah, they're measurable um, and specific. Right. The personal achievement badges, though, it's up to the youth to define their own goals and then to fulfill them. So I've had multiple youth, after introducing them to Bitsbox, come to me and they're just like, I'm going to do my technology badge. Cool. What are you going to do for your technology badge? I'm going to build you this app, this app, this app, and this app. Oh, that's awesome. Go. <laughs> yeah. Go. Just go. <laughs> Make it happen. Um, and, oh. you know, they've done it. I've had kids build me drawing programs and, and little games and all kinds of fun stuff. So it makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's great tech. And thank you so much for, you know, helping bring it to life. Um, well, you're welcome. I think all I ever wanted to do was make something that had meaning, I guess. You know, making the world a better place is um, a cliche. But I think wanting to leave the world in... pursuit, though. Well, wanting to leave the world in better shape than you left it, or than you, you than it was when you arrived, is the way I kind of like principle. it. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the things I learned in scouting that still serve me today about leadership and organizing your thoughts and treating people the way that you'd like to be treated um, and communicating with people who feel differently than the way you feel and, and learning about other cultures and I don't know, quantifying your learning. I mean, all of it. When I really think back and think back to how much of I got this, how much of this that I got from the pretty wonderful, with a couple of exceptions, leaders that I had in scouting. Uh, <laughs> I'm just really grateful for it. I really am. And so I'm glad that Bitsbox has been so helpful in what you're trying to do. I hope we continue to be. And just please let me know if you need anything else. If any of your listeners uh, would like to contact me or us, then help at bitsbox.com is a great way to get a hold of us. If you'd like to send me a message, I'm just Aiden. That's A-I-D-A-N at bitsbox.com. And you can find me there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, we are at an hour and I can actually hear my son crying upstairs. So I'm going to have to go see what that's about. <laughs> you should. But uh, <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks, Kenneth. Take care. Have a great weekend. I hope to meet you in person soon. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.